0: I think people are settling into this notion of uh, different horses for different courses approach to IT, that they're going to rent some of it, that they're going to own some of it. And I think the debates about you know public cloud versus private cloud are just going to fall aside into, you know look, we've got to use for all of it and we've got to figure out where best to do our work. I think that's the next 12 to 18 months. And in fact, I think we're sort of getting there more quickly today. And-
1: Welcome to another conversations with Des. I'm your host Des Blanchfield, and today I'm joined in the studio by Matt Baker, who's a senior vice president of strategy and planning at Dell EMC. Matt, thanks for joining the show. Yeah,
0: hey, thanks for having me. It's it's great to be here, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it.
1: Well, funnily enough, we have a lot more in common than uh, I had initially anticipated, uh, which we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, but you're in the US there, and uh, I'm in uh, sunny old Australia here. Although I, was, uh, I think we were joking earlier on, we've had a couple of degrees change in temperature and. Uh, Aussies are getting given a hard time by the Kiwis across the uh, ditch about wearing scarves because it's gone up two or three degrees. Um, But I had to laugh when you mentioned that uh, Texans are putting on puffy jackets because it's gone a few degrees up as well. I thought that was pretty funny.
0: That's right. Yeah, everyone's got their down out. It's, uh, you know, 65 degrees here and, and it's like there might as well have been a blizzard. (laughs) <laughs> just the way it is here
1: oh well we're we're pretty funny characters now i i've been tracking you on twitter of course and following you and i i love there was a couple of things i wanted to riff on uh, you're a big fan of being on the water which i am as well i i love getting up for a bit of a paddle but the one the couple that grabbed me actually was uh turns out you'd watched the matrix series i think you tweeted you'd watched it recently with your daughter in the whole series and you noted that i think it was uh it's coming what is it the uh 20 year anniversary for the matrix uh, series launch
0: it is, which, again, dates us a little bit because I remember seeing it after college in the theater. Um, but, you know, it's it's definitely one of those movies that one holds up over time incredibly well, um, even though it was groundbreaking at the time in terms of cinematography and all that stuff. But the core concepts, right, the idea of the Matrix. And as we sort of sit here in a in a world, especially in the U.S., where there's a little bit of of uh, blowback from the elections and social media and all of that stuff. You know, the, the Matrix sort of gives you a cautionary tale about you know the, the good sides and the bad sides of technology. I, of course, believe in the good side of technology, but there's always two stories to riff on and, and argue over. And I think The Matrix does a pretty amazing job of sort of highlighting what happens when technology actually becomes life. Versus a part of life, so it was interesting. It was a good, good philosophical fodder for a conversation.
1: I bet it was. Well, hilariously, uh, the thing that really struck me was not only were we both fans of the Matrix series, but uh, we'd essentially watched it with our children. Uh, I watched it with my son a, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, and we we spent an hour or so watching each one, and then an hour or so talking about them in detail. And one of the things I said to him was, "This is almost kind of like the 1984 of the modern generation." Um, the other thing that uh, struck me was that you uh, you had a comment on someone else's tweet that your first album was Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil on cassette and it reminded me of making mixtapes, which uh, we were talking earlier and I commented that it was uh, mixtapes of kind of like the playlists of the current generation, really.
0: They are, except they took a lot longer to make,
1: like a lot longer. <laughs> they sure did. Um, and and I laugh because I often ask people if they're uh, sort of from the cassette generation, uh, whether they're a Sony or a TDK person, and it turns out you're a Maxell fan.
0: I, I was a Maxell fan. They had them in these big sleeves, and uh, I remember sitting there with the sort of double-deck making mixtapes. Um, and before that, I, you know, uh, sort of recording off the air, You know, I can't believe we'd sit around waiting for a song to play and then record it off the radio. I mean, talk about like we might as well have been, you know, scribing into the walls of a cave somewhere in southern France. It was it was that ancient. (laughs)
1: Well, that makes me feel very old because I remember doing that with uh, cassette tapes capturing programs off an old BBC station uh, that was replayed in New Zealand to capture Commodore 64 games. So that really makes me feel ancient.
0: There there, there you go.
1: Now, I would love to dive into the detail of what a day in the life of Matt Baker uh, and your role as Senior Vice President of Strategy and Planning at uh, Dell EMC is. But before we do, I wonder if we could maybe take a little sideways journey and get to know you a little bit better. Um, I'd love you to maybe share some detail around just, you know, kind of where you're originally from, where you grew up, and maybe any insights and anecdotes and funny stories around your uh, academic and career path that sort of got you to this amazing role.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, I grew up in um, Annapolis, Maryland, or actually just outside Annapolis, Maryland, which is is sort of the capital of sailing in the United States. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time on the water um, with my father um, and you know, weekends, I, I said one time to my wife, I think I spent probably 50% of my life before the age of 16 on the water in some form or fashion. I remember, um, my family is also from a small Island off the coast of Massachusetts and we'd go there every summer and we weren't the the rich summer people. We were the scallopers, the, you know, the, uh, the, the folks building houses for the summer folks, um, and my father and I used to go out in a little 17-foot Boston whaler way offshore, and I remember getting stuck in storms, breaking down. Eventually, we'd always fix the thing. So that's sort of what my childhood was like, was, uh, was going out, getting on the water, either sailing or fishing or whatever. Um, and, and that's what life was like in Maryland and Massachusetts in my early days.
1: And you did a, a BA in political science and English literature, which I thought was interesting, that then explains why you're uh, so well written and spoken as far as your uh, podcasts and videos go. And, and cause I, I love your Matt Baker series, which we'll get into in a minute. But you also, uh, I, I read that you did a, a year in the UK in London at uh, Queen Mary university. That must've been an interesting uh, sideways trip for you.
0: It was awesome. You know, it was the East end of London. Um, it wasn't like going to, uh, you know, the posh side of London to go to like London School of Economics. It was out there on Mile End Road in London and uh, just had a fabulous time, you know, living life in working class London and uh, really got to love the city. Um, you know, it was great. It was great. But yeah, I have a degree that's kind of strange given I'm in technology. I have no formal technology training.
1: Well, I have, to admit, I have to admit I'm the same. I, I dropped out of uni after three months and uh, was supposed to do a computer science degree. But I actually think it held us in good stead because uh, I suspect from from looking at your background, you've done a bunch of traveling and seen the world. It, I, th- I feel like travel is so important. It sets us up for the rest of our lives. So your time in the, in the UK and whatnot probably set you up for a broader view of the world than some of our peers might have had.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And I think, I said the other day to somebody that my – I, I wouldn't even call it university because it was a small college with 1,400 people. Um, but uh, it, it was a lesson in critical thinking skills, and that's really what it was all about. You know, I, I wrote two um, uh, senior theses. One was on, uh, of all things, the politics and society of James Joyce's Ulysses.
1: Oh, wow. And
0: then another another on um, on sort of the— uh, the history of censorship in the United States. So it was fun, but, uh, you know, I, 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 I basically was a terrible student growing up. I was, I was a a bit of a, of a angry punk rocker, um, with a tall green Mohawk. Um, and, uh, I just, uh, I just went and said, Hey, I'm not going to go here for some, to learn about a trade. I'm going to go here to sort of think. And I enjoyed thinking and arguing and that's, that's what I did. Um, I, I'm and trying so, to
1: picture you with a tall green mohawk because uh, nobody you and, can. <laughs> you and I both have the same hairstyle.
0: <laughs> That's right. I, I always say, though, that uh, you know the keep to keep the mohawk up, you had to use like Elmer's glue. And the yeah. reason why I have no hair down the middle is that I just stressed it out so bad. So now I have a reverse
1: mohawk. <laughs> I, I remember doing something with um soap. I think we went through an era where we had to use lots of soap, and then uh, by about mid twenties, my hair told me why that wasn't a good idea. <laughs> now, you also, yeah. you also had an interesting period uh, uh, at Intel working on um the whole mobile handset division or cellular div- uh, spaces mm-hmm. they, they call it in the US. Um, that that would have been an interesting start to your whole career life because I mean we kind of we've gone full circle now in the last couple of decades, coming right back to that whole space, haven't we?
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, it's interesting. It was a really um, wonderful time to be at Intel, and that was my last stint. It was only about a year and a half um, when I was at Intel, and I worked on – I I managed a team of applications engineers, and that sounds like application developers, but it was actually at, at Intel. Those are the folks that design chips into platforms, so it's the application of the chip into something. And uh, we did a lot of work um, at the time with BlackBerry, with Asus Tech, with, with a bunch of folks who you know now aren't necessarily in the middle of the the mobile phone industry. But I, you know, the the thing that I think led to a bit of a, you know, what I say is my little uh, hidden superpower is that I actually spent seven of those ten years in IT roles, and I started actually at Intel as a temp, so like a temp worker. I I. I you know, um, registered with a temporary agency and I happened to get a job. And then for a number of different reasons, that job didn't work out. And they called me up and they said, Hey, we've got this job doing accounts, add moves and changes at Intel. And so if, if just what is it accounts, moves and changes, it's so low that they won't even let you to the help desk to answer the phone. So literally adding and moving accounts for Banyan vines and T was just coming along DeckNet, all of these different things. And so that's how I started at Intel. And I did a lot of cool projects after that. I I had a knack for it. And Intel was investing heavily in getting high-speed internet into the home. And so working with large carriers, but also, uh, you know, the US telecom um, uh, uh, market had been recently deregulated. And there were all these um, small upstarts that started installing what at the time was called, uh, digital subscriber line, what we know now as DSL. And so I got the opportunity to install the first DSL lines, um, into homes of Intel's executive ranks. So it was cool. I got to take, uh, support calls from Andy Grove. Um, uh, in fact, the person running, um, uh, Intel Labs, who was the sort of sponsor alongside the the Intel Capital Group or the the venture investing arm that was helping push these technologies, was actually Pat Gelsinger. He was running Intel Labs, and I was the IT liaison to Intel Labs to run this DSL trial. So it was really, you know, I was in the right place at the right time during the dawn of what is now sort of the modern uh, computing era. Right, the notion of Um, having a ubiquitous access to this internet Uh, and then my last stint was taking it from you know fixed wireline to wireless and off we're running right so and and our world has changed massively since then and it's been fun to be a part very small part of that change.
1: Well, What an amazing pedigree to have well you've literally gone from uh, breaking new ground to groundbreaking and uh, you know that whole uh, uh, storyline going to the point where we're now looking at fixed wireless access as sort of being the new normal with 5G uh, kind of just makes me look back and think we kind of solved a lot of that. We just didn't have 3GPP pushing quite so hard for standards these days. Now, I'm keen to get a, a bit more insight on what a day in the life of Matt Baker uh, is like as, as, as far as your role now inside Dell EMC. I mean, you're the Senior Vice President of Strategy and Planning. That's a very broad role from what I can tell, but it also seems like you get to deep dive some of the, the critical components around the whole cloud space and, and what you're doing with the Dell Technologies cloud platform, the challenges around data and data management, and, and that whole sort of shift to digital transformation and the digital revolution and, and things that happen in business and society. But maybe just uh, you know, a quick view of what a day in the life of Matt Baker is like currently.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's the sort of work-a-day work that we do it all the time, right, which is doing our annual planning, our fiscal planning, um, looking at what is happening in the markets, I have a team of folks that uh, do market intelligence, which you know basically means looking after our competitors and growth rates and helping us figure out where the business is going and where the business needs to go. But more, more and more, it's really focused on okay, what are the big trends reshaping the industry, and then how do we, um, as a company, um, take advantage of those trends and, frankly, help our customers take advantage of those trends to really add value to their business and, and, in process, make our business successful. And the great thing about being at Dell is that, you know, a strategy role, you know, it sounds kind of like this highfalutin ivory tower kind of thing, but it's really not, especially here at Dell. And we're really focused on what are the pragmatic steps that we can take to get these new advanced capabilities and technologies into the hands of the many. Uh, and that's where I think that experience doing you know, the job of, of Joe IT admin has really helped, right? Things tend to take a little bit longer than we might expect. Um, it takes some time to shake out and mature. Um, and then ultimately you start to see successful patterns. And those successful patterns are what take a technology or or a space from something that is you know really interesting and, and has a lot of focus to something that becomes ubiquitous and frankly we stop talking about it as much as we used to because it's just become a fact of life. And there's a lot of trends that we're seeing, you know, we've spent, like you said, cloud. We've spent the better part of a decade talking about cloud. Um, and it's been it's meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but Increasingly, what we saw was cloud was an operating model, a way of building and operating IT, and it was really focused on operations, right? How do you create a great degree of efficiency? How do you make the business uh, more agile by giving people more instant access to IT capabilities? Um, And, uh, you know, along comes a model that we see becoming the standard model, which is this notion of uh, of a hybrid environment where you know something like ninety two percent of folks in surveys, I think from IDC state that they have um, one or more clouds, but that that uh, that the on-prem component remains an important part of their cloud strategy. so it's just sort of looking for these patterns and then finding the way to best um, accomplish what those customers are looking for. And and what we found, especially at Dell Technologies, is that, you know, we spent a decade again with virtualization and that's become a ubiquitous part of the lives of our IT administrators day-to-day. It's where they spend most of their time in the VMware console. And how could we extend that operational frame and capability from on-prem to the public cloud environments. And and in essence, in a nutshell, that's what we're doing with the Dell Technologies Cloud Platform, is unifying um, the cloud environments uh, through an operational hub that allows our customers to be far more efficient um, at operations and focus more of their energy at doing what everybody's talking about, which is this notion of digital transformation and and really codifying new business processes in applications. so that's you know that's what we do. That's what strategy is about: is figuring out how to really get all of this great technology we spend all day talking about. How do we get it into every single hand on Earth? Uh, uh, and and that that's what we're focused on.
1: It sounds exciting. I, uh, a colleague of mine. I won't mention the brand. They don't need free advertising from me. But uh, uh, <laughs> he's in a strategy role in a lot of transport, logistics, and and, and warehousing, and talking to him about his role he describes something very similar to what i can imagine picturing you being uh, and that is a, a, a good day for him thinking about strategies standing in the middle of their warehouses or fulfillment centers and looking at what's actually happening and then going outside and staring at the sky and thinking about where the next big shift is coming at them and i can picture you doing a combination of working walking the halls and talking to the teams internally to sort of generally get a a feeling of what's happening in the pulse of the company, but then also doing that inside your partners and integrators and resellers and clients to kind of blend that mix as to you know figuratively speaking, what's in the Dell warehouse, if you like, versus what's in the client warehouse and how you glue them. I'm interested to get a bit more insight into that whole Dell Technologies cloud platforming. We we hear a lot about cloud, and as you said, it's it's a, you know it's from this technical idea to more of a business idea these days. I I sort of see in the in a framework to work in and in um, a lot of ways I sort of think we've gone full circle and that is that you know when we talk about cloud technologies, we, we kinda of had this in the mainframe era with LPARs and whatnot and batch jobs, but we just modernize them. What is the what is a journey for an organization that's gone through Um, either trying themselves or had third parties work with them. When they come to you and say, tell me about Dell Technologies Cloud Platform, what's that journey look like from the very first point of contact to the various stages they go through working with your team to go through design and planning and implementations, maybe some trials, and then go all in and sort of move in towards that proper hybrid cloud approach that we want them to move to as opposed to what they might have done with attempted bespoke one-offs?
0: Yeah, I, you know it's interesting. There are a couple of patterns out there that I think are really illustrative of what's going on in the cloud and why you sort of land on this notion of, of a hybrid cloud. Um, you know, there's a there's a set of folks who have a going concern, right? They they have an IT capability, largely. They you know they might operate a data center or a computer room with a bunch of capability, and they're looking at um, these new uh, born you know, born digital companies and saying, hey, how do I modernize my operations from top to bottom uh, in such a way that, that, that I'm more modern, that I'm more, if you will, cloudy. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. A lot, of, a lot of them then go and look at these born native, um, digital natives, and they look, the first thing they see is digital natives don't operate their own infrastructure, right? So they, they are all in on public cloud. And a lot of times, frankly, that's the first mistake that the prior group makes is they think, ah, it's let's go all in on let's go all in on public cloud, it's it's cheaper, it's more agile, so on and so forth. And and then what they find out is is that look, it's it's neither of those things, particularly if you don't completely refactor the applications you intend to to run in the public cloud. And then you know, the interesting thing is on the flip side, you have those born native companies who then build to scale and and ultimately find themselves in a place where a mix of owned and operated um it infrastructure and the original public cloud or clouds that they deployed on that mix becomes the pattern that they're operating at because they find that a mix of you know owned and operated versus rented is the right way to manage the overall needs of their um of their, of their business from an IT perspective. And so those patterns both converge on, oops, I go. I tried to go all in on public cloud, it didn't quite work out, it was a little bit more expensive, so I'm gonna fall back and and have a little bit here and a little bit there, or a lot here on-prem and a little there, whatever the mix happens to be. And at that point, what they realize is, wow, I've got a bunch of different operational silos that I've gotta deal with, so now in the same way um, we saw a client-server arrive at a place where there was a lot of complexity, sort of one app, one server, a bunch of different ways of managing each and every single application. They're like, wow, we found ourselves in an environment where I have some Amazon assets, I have some Azure assets, I have my on, on-prem assets. How do I bring some degree of consistency and normalcy to these and that's the kind of platform that they're looking for, especially it seems that IT has has now been um, charged with taking over what the quote unquote business had done, right? So you had folks like marketers going out and building really important, critical applications on Amazon. But those developers aren't necessarily staffed and or skilled to operate something over the long haul to ensure its availability you know, to, to do all the governance required around uh, data, et cetera. So they hand it back to IT, and IT is like, wow, what, do I, what am I going to do with this? And so I think all in all, folks are just looking for a way to create some degree of consistency across these different deployment op- options so that they can leverage them sort of application by application. Does this application fit here, there, or somewhere else? And then can i manage it in a consistent way can i deploy it in a consistent way and can i do what i spent 15 years like i said doing virtualization can i achieve or i I guess i should say um, pull back and gain more efficiency by creating this normalization layer um, this consistent operational framework so i think that's the patterns that we're seeing and therefore the answer becomes Um, Quite elementary, it's you need to focus on creating an operational platform that puts the customer at the center of their IT universe and allows them to consistently control their investments in public cloud infrastructure and private cloud infrastructure. Does that make sense?
1: No, absolutely. One of the things that strikes me uh, is – and your, your comment with regard to going all in one way or the other, I, you know, I've seen a number of projects do both. You know They've either gone all data center and then found that that's not going to give them flexibility. They've gone all cloud and they've ended up dying a death of a thousand cuts because everything they read and write costs money. Underpinning all of that is this whole challenge of what to do with your data and the data management thing, which is one of the things I wanted to chat about with you because – uh, you know, I mean, Dell and EMC as far as uh, organizations are now Dell EMC, are world leaders in the space of data and data management storage. But there's also, I guess, the data management challenge of how you integrate all that into your various platform, platforms. And that becomes very challenging when it becomes hybrid. Um, what's happening in that whole space? And, and what's Dell doing currently around that space of you know, just you know data and, and not so much as storage, I guess, but the whole data management challenge? Because it's getting more and more complex and it's moving faster and faster. And it's one of the things I see now as a consistent thing on boardroom agendas that, you know, not only have they got to think about digital transformation, digital disruption, but there's a big red circle around data and a big question mark of uh, often where they're like, well, what is it? What does it mean and how on earth are we going to get our arms around it?
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's interesting. That's the, the thing that we haven't spent the last decade talking about. We've just been creating complexity, operational complexity, And while we create that operational complexity because data has gravity, we have data spread everywhere. And it's not just public clouds in in terms of of IaaS or the Amazon Web Services or or Azure. The the reality is, is that a large company might have 20 to 30 SaaS applications as well with business critical data spread out across all of those applications. And so, you know, there's some things that we've been doing for quite some time with our um, our integration platform as a service uh, product called Boomi, which creates, uh, in essence, um, data pipelines between applications. Say you have an investment in Salesforce.com, and you're building an application on Amazon Web Services, and frankly, you're leveraging elements of your on-prem ERP system. Well, the the Boomi tool allows you to create flows between those applications in such a way that you can you can create a, a logical data model to build an application out of and sync the data across those elements. But I think that's just one example of what we're seeing as an unsolved opportunity. Nobody I think is doing this in a good in a in a really great way in the industry. And therefore as a strategy guy, I think it's a massive opportunity because we're sitting here in a world where we haven't thought about the data underneath our feet it's spread like you know like a weed all over the place and now we've got to get control of it not only do we need to get control of it but increasingly business you know business value or competitive value is actually in organizing and activating your data right into some sort of business value so i sort of think of this frame of you've got You've got the need to persist and preserve data, and you know to some degree we're pretty good at that today. Um, you know, a lot of what we've done in data protection helps there. We've integrated with the cloud. Um, the second thing you have to do is move data, um, and so there's mobility, uh, uh, you know, mobility products out there. Boomi's one of them, but you know, from a, for a certain type of environment. And then last, you have to activate your data, right? and data activation these days is doing cool modern data analytics stuff like right? like machine learning and deep learning so that flow from preservation to mobility to activation today if you look at the marketplace it's nearly as fragmented as the as the securities you know the IT security space which is a big mess today right it's it's fractured everywhere so i see a huge opportunity to to pull that together and if you look at the data around what people are doing in these new modern data-centric workload spaces, I mentioned machine learning, is unfortunately they have these incredibly scarce and expensive, frankly, resources in the form of a data scientist, and they spend eighty to ninety percent of their time, you know, scrubbing data. It's like scrubbing the floor of data, um, getting it aligned, um, you know, time sequencing it properly. Putting it into a pipeline and then hoping that it stays consistent through time. So again, I think, you know, we we're on the cusp of of folks looking up and realizing, oh my gosh, the secret to business value isn't cloud operations. It's getting the data and making it worth something to the business. And we've got a pretty messy house right now of data. So I I don't think the problem is solved. I think we've got a good handle on, especially with the Dell Technologies Cloud Platform, we've got a great handle on facilitating the IT operations or the technology operations of an IT environment. And we've got a lot of great capabilities as it relates to storage, as in terms of tightly coupled data with the application. But I think broadly speaking, there is a huge opportunity for a broader data management capability. And certainly an area that we're focused, um, focusing our
1: innovation energy today. No, indeed, it is a, it's a more and more complex world. I remember reading a blog some time ago where Mark Andreessen said that software is going to eat the world. And then recently uh, I read something more lately where the CEO of NVIDIA, uh, I think it's Jensen Wang, predicted that, uh, uh, that AI is going to eat software. Um, <laughs> and then I was in a conversation over coffee with someone and they said, well, that's all well and good. But... Um, uh, AI is going to eat data, and data will make everything messy. Um, your comment with regard to uh, the the blend of uh, the persistence of data versus integration reminds me that uh, is it Kenny Rogers, the gambler? You know, know when to hold them and know when to throw. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's true. It's one of those things where you know everyone wants to hoard and keep everything, but that you know often they go back. I, I go back to that whole thing that you were talking about there with regard to data and the value of it, because. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you. Data has gravity. I've been talking about that for a couple of decades now. And so this idea of, of, of weighing the gravity of the various data you've got and placing some KPIs on it and putting a value on it and managing it like an asset, all of a sudden things change. But it, it's one of the fastest moving parts of the world I'm seeing now. And and when we see you know IoT and sensors going out there by the billions, they're saying, and 5G is going to change the world because now we're talking about gigabit connectivity to devices, not just smartphones, but anything with a 5G SIM in it, um, you know, every car going down the road becomes a data center as well as a data generator. Uh, the, it leads me to my next question then is that, you know, when we think about all of these things, I mean, the, the hybrid cloud, it seems to be a natural fit, you know, based on what you're telling us and, and what we've seen coming out of what you're doing now in the work at Dell Technologies Cloud Platform and so forth. And that whole view of the, the challenge around data you're just sharing uh, just gives us an enormous amount of topical material to talk on going forward. But The impact of all this, you know, the whole digital revolution on business and society and the impact of that, I mean, you are perfectly positioned in your strategic role uh, and and the planning you're working on to sort of have a grasp on this. What's your take on on the general impact of this whole shift, not so much just digital disruption, digital transformation, but that whole digital revolution where – um, you know, even the new and emerging worlds of sort of, you know, the, the, the 54 states and territories of Africa and, and, you know, 1.1 billion people are predominantly unbanked and don't have a mobile phone yet, but they're about to get one. Um, right. And they're going to be starting to use technologies you've got. I mean, you know, when you, when you add the 1.3 billion in, in, in India and the 1.45 billion in China, there's roughly 3.8 billion of which the bulk of don't have a bank account, don't have a device yet, but they're about to. And it's about to be 5G. What's your take on the impact of this whole digital revolution on both, I guess, you know, existing developed worlds and in new and emerging worlds? Because business is going to transform, in my view, significantly from where we used to know people sitting at computers at a screen in an office to it's just going to be mobile and be everywhere.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that you say that. So a couple of different angles I want to bring up. The first is, is something really important that we need to pull out of what you were just talking about, which is we've just spent the last, what, 15 minutes talking about the cloud, and we talked about the old locality setup of it's your own data center on-prem, it's your, you know, it's this other thing, this off-prem capability, the, cl- the public cloud. Uh, interestingly, I think the the bigger and and more interesting opportunity longer term is the fact that there's this third premises, right? There's this edge Environment and it's it could be the edge in terms of all those sensors, or it could be more of the interior edge, say a small micro data center, in a you know in a I don't know a CEO of a, a of a telco, um, or frankly a small looks like a refrigerator in you know a corner of a municipality, right? Those the the, the thing that we forget is that. You know the speed of light is a is a is a law, but it's a bitch, right? It you can't get around it unless someone figures out some way of quantum networking. We are stuck with the speed of light, and the speed of light, you know, folks don't quite realize that just going hundred miles introduces a, an amount of 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 lag that over over time through all of those TCP IP backs and forths, is going to induce some some degree of lag in the application you're building, so you know, sort of in lay terms. So the the notion of it being this on-prem off-prem, well, there's going to be compute everywhere, and for very good reasons. And not only not only that, it, it it might be, um, not might be true. It is true that data does have gravity, and therefore, trying to move all the data to a single place versus moving the applications which are lighter weight or the algorithms out to these different spaces is probably a more effective way to do broad you know wide analytics for different types of applications so i think the thing that we that we aren't talking enough about is this notion of of the edge and not devices per se not necessarily cell phones or sensors but the notion of needing to do compute closer to the point of action, I think is something that's going to recast the industry. And frankly, one of the reasons why I think we see so much growth in the in the server space because people are putting more and more compute into more and more corners of the globe. And I think that your your sort of second part of it, which is you know developing regions, um, it's really fascinating to see how unique those patterns are in places that were not banked prior, that didn't have a sort of significant telecom presence. I was in Kenya last year and I'm, I'm excited to be going back. And I was struck that no matter where I went in that country, I had all bars. I had, you know, it was the best mobile coverage I've seen, like way better than here in Texas. And I talked with somebody about it and they happened to go, Hey, you don't realize, but the way people bank here is via their cell phone using a very simple SMS-based app from a, you know, from a, in some cases, a candy bar phone. And so you really see technology and that that notion of its disruptive potential, people running small little businesses and using this mobile service to gain banking rather than needing some sort of brick-and-mortar infrastructure. So I, I – I, like I said, I'm real bullish on technology, and I'm real bullish on the power of technology and digital technologies to really change the way people live for the better. I think that's a great example of it um, in Kenya. Uh, I believe it's in Kenya, Uganda, uh, and Tanzania. Um, uh, and it's, it's just fascinating to see – what's happening. But I don't think it's gonna be a pattern that necessarily looks completely like what we've seen in the United States or Western Europe, ANZ. Um, but I'm sure cert- I, I sure am excited about it. And I'm I'm particularly excited that this pattern of the edge is something that we, you know, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about. What we just talked about with data just becomes a massive data problem when you consider distributed applications and distributed execution.
1: Well, Dell's no stranger to this. I mean, you've got your um, uh, Dell Edge gateways and, and your shift into the whole IoT space and everything that's happening there, and you are literally putting your arms around the Edge space. One of the things that um, that you mentioned there reminded me of, of the fact that I, I tune into your... Uh, uh, baker 's dozen, which I, I think is funny because you number it one, two, three four, five, six six point five, um, given that bacon 's dozen is thirteen, of course, um, and you spoke in the latest one i 've seen, which I think is episode five, a lot about what AI is going to be doing and and a lot of the stuff you 've just talked about um, i mean is it, is AI as pervasive I and mean, we, we kind of joked about you know, sort of the machine and matrix and whatnot is artificial as perva- artificial intelligence and particularly machine learning not so much uh, this more sentient deep learning but is machine learning as pervasive as we we are hearing it is, as far as what you're seeing out in the world, particularly with your partners and your integrators and your customers, or are we still at the very early edge of that maturity curve?
0: We, are, I, I think we're we haven't even started the game yet. I think we're super early, um, and uh, you know, I, I don't think we've even gotten to the point of unlocking one tenth of one percent of what's going to be possible going forward and that's you know that's back to what i was saying before about dell and this notion of of being a strategy guy at dell it's it's all about pragmatic innovation and and unfortunately the world of of let's just call it advanced data-centric workloads so under there i would put machine learning deep learning GANs, ai blah 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 blah, all of that stuff um, if you want to implement that today, it's scores and scores of small open source projects to knit together, and we've 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 created a, a sort of a set of bespoke platforms. Uh, I shouldn't say bespoke, but packaged capabilities that we that we call a ready system for different types of AI uh, uh, frameworks. But I think we need to see some degree of of, of uh, Coagulation, if you will, in the in the more academic side of of AI and ML, so that we can bring frameworks like broad frameworks that are easy and approachable. I think there's some examples of those at 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 sort of the very um, you know. I think if you talk to an AI ML person, and and I brought up the up something like um what's a good example uh, MathWorks right so MathWorks has a, a platform called MATLAB and inside of it they have some built-in ml algorithms and you can train your data in fact it can do machine vision they have uh, algorithms for that and you can assemble together a fairly basic um, machine learning or even a, a pretty advanced machine learning platform or algorithm set of algorithms and so, I think we need more things like MATLAB. Um, I've heard someone talk about um, something, I think it was called Algorithm Forge or something to, to that, uh, that um, idea. And so the idea of bringing these platforms together into something that's approachable, the sort of Excel for ML, if you will, I think is somewhere we need to get to as an industry. We're just not there yet. And until we get there, I think it's going to be locked up a little bit inside of the elite... IT departments of the world versus being pervasive. So I'm constantly on the lookout for, where are some of these more pedestrian platforms for machine learning that would allow people to move from what they do today, standard reporting, data warehousing, to something a little bit more advanced? And I went through this with my own team just uh, a couple years ago, which is why I mentioned MATLAB. We, we used MATLAB to, in essence, correct uh, market forecasts. And since we've done that, we've we've actually had a much more accurate picture of where the market's going and why it's going there by mixing together data sources to give us better insights into where the market's likely to go versus just using an off the shelf market forecast from one of the big analyst firms. So I again, early, early innings, we need to see some standardization, some platforms. That today I think people would, you know, would look down their nose at if they're in the AI ML space, but really makes it more approachable um, for the average uh, business to take advantage of.
1: I like that. It always reminds me of an analogy I did years ago uh, comparing rocket scientists who thought there were rockets everywhere in the planet because that was their world versus car engineers who could prove there were cars everywhere in the world. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you're a rocket scientist in the lab and that's all you do, then the whole world's rockets. But uh, if you're a car engineer, you can step outside and just point at lots of them. Um, no, it's interesting you say that because I, I like the the the, the whole bona fide down to earth honesty of that uh, the general conversation topic of where AI is at because we do get caught up in the hype and the media pumps the pants off it and you know and and, and you, know, you recognise it in your um, recent version I think it was number five of your um, show the uh, the Baker's Dozen where you talked about you know the whole topic of Deep Blue versus Kasparov and AlphaGo et cetera. And where it's going to, and and then I guess the, the thing that really um, I liked hearing was that when you talked about sort of you know h- cloud health tools, and and now we're seeing you know intelligent networks and other things, and it reminded me of Border Gateway Protocol, um, BGP four, which is yeah. really what you know the whole internet. Don't runs mention
0: on. that. <laughs> oh, my gosh, you're going to give you me know. a nightmare. <laughs>
1: um, but, you know, I, uh, when I look around and, and people sort of say, you know, show me something's been running that's, you know, dumb that acts smart. And I'm like, well, there's this thing called the Internet and it's run by routing with BGP4 and it can outlast a nuclear blast. And they look at me as if I'm mad. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's been going from from the day the Internet was essentially you know, converted to TCP. Um, Matt, before we wrap up, one of the things I love to do with my guests, you've some amazing insights. And I know our listeners are going to absolutely eat that up and love it. And they're going to ask me when you're back on the show. But um, I'd like to wrap up by handing you a virtual crystal ball and get you to gaze into it because um, I suspect you've got some deep gems buried in that heart and soul of yours. If I was to hand you a virtual crystal ball um, and ask you to gaze into it for a moment, where are we in 12 to 18 months or more? What's over the horizon that we haven't sort of imagined? You're so well positioned to give us some insight into that. Um, where do you see us being in a year and a half to or even maybe three to five years? What are the big trends that we should be thinking about and considering and and, and both from a, a hands-on practitioner point of view of, of folk who are out there you know doing the tech sport tickets as as we've both done in the past or, or in boardrooms so who are just trying to get a grip on where the world's rotating? What's your general take on sort of what's coming over the horizon at us?
0: Well, I think that the I think people are settling into this notion of uh, different horses for different courses approach to IT, that they're going to rent some of it, that they're going to own some of it. And I think the debates about you know, public cloud versus private cloud are just going to fall aside into, you know look, we've got to use for all of it, and we've got to figure out where best to do our work. I think that's the next 12 to 18 months. And in fact, I think we're sort of getting there more quickly today. And, and one reason why we focused on this Dell Technologies cloud platform is to sort of bring us to that conclusion as an industry, but if I were to go forward, you know, three to five years, I think we will have recognized the data management challenge that we've created over the past decade. And we're going to spend a lot of time as an industry, industry talking about solutions to that problem, because I think it's going to find its way into blocking some of that ubiquity of machine learning, deep learning and other things. I mentioned it earlier, you know, we've got data scientists spending 80 to 90 percent of their time really doing data engineering tasks or, or or maybe even custodial tasks with, you know, just sweeping up the data, you know, putting it in the garbage pail for someone else to take care of later. That is not an efficient use of what today is a very scarce resource. So I, I think we'll start to see In the same way, we started to see IT roles reordering in terms of, you know, you had a virtualization admin instead of a server storage networking admin. Now you have cloud architects, cloud administrators. I think we're going to start to see a partitioning of roles built around the data pipeline, you know, managing data, ensuring the governance of data, uh, ensuring the ethical use of data. Um, I think we're just going to see data become the focus is going to be data, 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 and cloud is going to fall away as, yeah, we're doing that kind of situation.
1: I like that. Well, there's a famous uh, quote along the lines of uh, data, data, data. I can't make bricks with clay that comes from uh, one of my favorite shows. Uh, uh, now, I, um, I could talk all day with you, Matt, but uh, we're coming up in the hour, so we're going to wrap up there. Thank you so much for making uh, time to uh, chat with me and letting me throw in my favorite Sherlock quote at the end there with data, data, data. Uh, I, I think we're going to have you back on the show very soon because uh, there's there's a whole range of other topics that I'd love to dive in with you. But thanks so much for making time to catch up with me today. It's been great to get to know you a bit better and get to know some of the insights around what's happening with the uh, hybrid cloud and uh, Dell Technologies cloud platform and where data fits into that and some of the insights you've shared around the whole impact of what's happening with the digital revolution on both society and business, and I really appreciate your time.
0: Yeah, yeah, and maybe by the time I come back, I'll have the rhyme of the ancient data scientist, which will be a play on my favorite poem, and it will be data, data everywhere and not an insight to speak of. Wow. So uh, we we got to solve that problem. So I'll leave you with a favorite quote, but sort of twist it around a little bit.
1: I think it was awesome. great.
0: I really enjoyed this talk. It, it, was, it was a lot of fun.